No, I say I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. <laughs> the only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking utility <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country produced players and where we play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest. Stephen Kenny, we won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And fighting is there! Robbie Brady brings us all to Hello and welcome to another edition of the Trade the Back podcast brought to you by Backpage Football. Com. Joining me this week is Enda Higgins and Simon Kelly. How are you, lads? Not too bad. How are you? Yeah, all good. Thanks. Good stuff. So, as the manager Mario go around, world's its way around for another week. Two more fall, but it's the one man who everyone thinks should have long dropped off by now. Clings on for dear life. We'll talk about the latest in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's situation following Saturday's Manchester Derby defeat as Dean Smith and Daniel Farke get the bullet. We'll take a look at West Ham's massive win over Liverpool and chat about the upcoming international break as Ireland welcomed Portugal to the Aviva on Thursday night on a high following the wins last month in the previous international break. In part two, we're joined by Football España editor Alan Feely to take a look at La Liga, where Real Sociedad lead away ahead of Real Madrid and Sevilla. And we'll also talk about Xavi's big return to Barcelona and why Unai Emery settled with Villarreal after flirting with Newcastle last week. So lads, um, it's probably not a great indication of things uh, when the lead is talking about manager sackings and hiring. So I think uh, we'll start with the actual football uh, for one week. Um, and it wasn't a good weekend for Liverpool. I mean, succumbing to their first defeat since April, I think it was the end of a 25 unbeaten match streak. Um, and of course, like any Liverpool loss, it came with a, a few complaints from Jurgen Klopp. Yeah, he never takes a loss lightly, in fairness. Um, one being the first goal with uh, Angela Agbana impeding on Allison, and then the second one, the the tackle from Aaron Cresswell. Um, but beyond that, I think it was a pretty poor performance from Liverpool. Um, I think we'll get into how good West Ham were shortly, um, but Enda, where did you stand on those big decisions and, and how Liverpool were played overall? Yeah, Klopp was in foul form after it, even, form. By his, <laughs> even by his standards. Um I just felt like West Ham had Liverpool figured out a bit. Um, They haven't been as um, aggressive at the back this season, maybe, as they have been under Klopp's kind of peak. Um, And that first goal where you actually see it almost looks planned, where they put two players on Alisson and and really did a job in in that regard. So um, it just felt like one of those matches that could be extremely problematic for Liverpool, especially considering the former West Ham. But... um, Perhaps it's been coming this season. Uh, I think in a lot of their matches, they've either you know scored at the right time or perhaps been a bit fortunate. Um, they have, have had a lot of dips in their play, particularly uh, in the European matches. Um, and it, I think that's finally caught up to them. I said at the start of the season uh, in their first match that they still don't feel like the machine that they were perhaps 18 or 24 months ago. 
uh, still a fabulous squad. Obviously, a fabulous team. Um, the squad depth is still a, a huge concern, considering they didn't really replace uh, Shakiri or Wijnaldum in the summer, and, and Harvey Elliott was a huge loss as well. Um, so uh, I thought West Ham were, were just great value for the win. I, I just think Allison kind of summed up the chaos of the Liverpool performance, really, and, and you know... Um, and as we said, that lack of squad depth in the past few weeks, particularly in midfield, and and even though Fabinho's back, he he doesn't look, you know, as comfortable as as you'd expect. Uh, Thiago's cameo was very disappointing as well. So, um, yeah, not too many reasons for long term concern for Liverpool, but I, I think they're in a bit of a tricky spell at the moment, where they're perhaps not playing as well as they'd want to be, and. Um, uh, and they don't really have the squad to change it as well, which is probably the bigger issue. Sometimes when Klopp has needed something different, he's gone for that kind of four-two-three-one. Um, but he doesn't really have the players to do that now with Firmino out for the next three to four weeks, I think. Um, so I think it's kind of taken their toll a little bit. Um, I think overall they'll be fine, but they just came into probably the most informed team in the league. Uh, and it just wasn't really good timing in terms of the tough matches they've had to come through in the last few weeks. I mean, that, that Atletico match in particular uh, a few weeks ago in Spain looked to really take it out of them. Um, and then obviously dropping... Uh, two points against Brighton when they look so comfortable. So it's a bit rocky at the moment, but uh, um, there's no shame in losing to West Ham considering the way they played. Well, Simon, are, how how different do things go in that game if uh, if Ogbonna is uh, is uh, called for a fall on Allison and Aaron Cresswell is uh, sent off for that tackle on Henderson? Yeah, they're two interesting talking points. I mean, going to the um, the Cresswell one first uh, because. I was watching the, the Spurs and Everton match on the weekend and Mason Holgate got sent off for the exact same tackle, uh, followed through, got the ball, but followed through and like went just onto the shin of uh, Hoybier. So that, that's, a, that's a definite red, really. Uh, there's, no, there's no question about it. And it just seems like one of those decisions that um, nobody really wanted to make the, the final call on it. But uh, for the Ogbonna one, it's a bit more... Uh, it's a bit more questionable whether whether that was a foul or not. A lot of people are very strong in in both directions, whether it is a foul or isn't. Um, I I would be leaning more towards the fact that it probably I don't think it was a foul, but again, it's just one of those decisions where it's it's quite um it's quite hard to call. But yeah, I mean, it was one of those matches where it was kind of on a bit of a knife edge. Liverpool were there to kind of get taken advantage of. West Ham are the, the exact type of team that wanna that are going to take advantage of that situation. And um, they just look so strong the way they play. And they have such strength running through that team. And if you're kind of switching off against West Ham that in the way that Liverpool did, that they're gonna they're gonna pounce on that. Um but that being said, you know, Liverpool kind of created their own problems in a way as well. I mean, those those three goals all came from from Allison being fairly mm. poor. Um, and that seems to be kind of, you know, it's a team that's picking up a bit more over the last couple of months where, you know, Allison has a mistake or two in him and teams can take advantage of that. And there is just that kind of sheen of invincibility has been worn off Liverpool. And, you know, as Enda says, it's not, it's not the case where, you know, Liverpool fans should be worried about the team. They're still, still up there and they still play some fantastic football and they still have a real quality first team. Um, but yeah, as Enda said, it's it's that bench you're going to be looking to for players to come off and, and make a difference, and there doesn't seem to be really anyone there. 
Um, we discussed obviously last season about kind of the clock burnout. It never really happened, but there were always signs of it kind of happening. It just seems like a kind of quite a long winded um, period where they they reached their peak, you know, a year ago, uh, a year and a half ago, and they haven't really been able to reach it since. Um, so they're kind of on their way down. You know, all those players are into their thirties now, and they're not as fit and they're not as good as they used to be. But you know, you can't really make a decision on those things because they're still up there and they're still a quality team. But um, yeah, it, it looks like a, a strange kind of situation for Liverpool at the moment. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think they'll be okay this season. But questions might may arise if if things like this keep happening. Yeah, I found the Cresswell one really tough to judge, actually, just because his leg actually like bounces off the top of the ball, and that's kind of what causes this high-looking follow-through. Whereas if you look at the the other tackles, the Holgate one, the Pogba one against Liverpool, um, you know, we we saw uh, in the North London derby as well. Mm. It's a tackle where players have more control of their follow-through, whereas with Cresswell. It's it's a bizarre looking really <laughs> in terms of how how his leg bounces off the top of the ball and and I saw a few print screens on Twitter saying well how is this not a foul and it looks absolutely horrific but it's almost one of those incidents where I think referees and officials would not want to have to look at a VAR screen because it's it would just be easier to let the game run on so I can fractionally see how some people would say um, that it wasn't a red card but when the big thing we've wanted from VAR is consistency. And uh, mm. in that sense, anything that kind of remotely resembles a high tackle usually ends in red. So um, just in, term, in terms of taking it in isolation, you could maybe make arguments for and against. But uh, in terms of the type of challenges VAR is trying to cut out, and we, and we talked about this with the Pogba one at Wolves in particular, in terms of the type of challenges VAR doesn't want to happen in the game, that would be right at the top of the list. So I, I was a bit surprised in the end that it stood, even though, uh, or that he wasn't sent off, rather, uh, even though I could understand the incident in isolation. Yeah, I mean, like you said, in the the, the print screens the, don't shed it in a good light, but I think the basis of my thinking, which I do think it was a red card at the time, was simply in comparison to some of the other incidents that we've seen throughout the season, like the Pogba one, like the, um, if you remember the James Ward-Prowse one uh, a couple of weeks ago, where if it seems to be going down the direction that if a player is out of his own control, that he's getting sent off for it. And I think if you kind of applied that tackle to that basis, I think Cressel was lucky not to get sent off. Um, But like, again, if you do take it in isolation, um, without some of the uh, the other prior examples that we've seen that have been red cards, it probably wasn't a red card. Um, but obviously, it goes back again to the, the consistency and the, the consistency of VAR as well, which is something that um, this seems really struggled with last season and it seemed to be a, a little bit more bedded down this year. Um, on the augmented thing, I didn't think it was a, a foul at the time. I still don't think, even though um, there was kind of a turn of tide of... of, of uh, of 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 a, an opinion there today, I've seen uh, from a couple of people, but to me, um, I think he was fully entitled to 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 attack the ball from the corner. Um, and Allison, considering Allison was behind him, um, I don't think he can have any excuses really, considering he was impeded, um, and kind of flailed for the ball. And and like Simon said, Allison, probably one of his worst games, um, in a long long time for Liverpool. And 
that's the thing with Liverpool right now is, you know, their highs are very high. Uh, when they're on form, they're they're really on it. And, you know, they can shred teams and they can score two or three goals in, in 10 minutes and the game is over. But I think it was another game, um, and Andy, you said it, it was that kind of a trend now we're seeing that if teams are brave against Liverpool, they can they can beat them. Um, we saw it with Brentford earlier on this season. They were very, um, they really put it up against Liverpool. They they had the two guys up front who kind of bullied the defence, um, Ivan Tony and, and, and Mbuma. Brighton, uh, a week or two ago, were very brave again. Um, you know, they had their plan, they stuck to it, uh, and it paid off. Uh, and again last night, um, West Ham, big physical team. They weren't afraid of Liverpool. They attacked from the off. Um, I think probably in the second half, they kind of smelt blood then uh, with some of their counter-attacking. Um, I mean, the the Pablo Fernandes goal he basically had the, the whole middle of the pitch to, to run through and, and I thought Joel Matip was uh, was very poor for that goal uh, didn't track the run uh, and Fernandes came in and, and obviously Alisson should have done better but uh, I think huge credit to West Ham they're, they're performing so well but another poor performance from Liverpool and, and, and someone asked me over the weekend is this a title winning team and you know it, it's hard it's hard to say that they are on this current form. And you look at the midfield, you look at guys like Oxlade-Chamberlain now who are getting minutes um, and aren't performing. Um, the injuries are, again, we saw it last year with the defence and now in midfield they're starting to take their toll. Fabino was poor on Sunday, um, probably has too much on his plate. Um, you know, we've we've seen when Fabino isn't next to, say, a Wijnaldum and Henderson, he, he, he tends to bite off more than he can chew and probably gets overran himself. Um, I think the gap between Robertson and Chimikas is at a point now where I'd probably be starting Chimikas. Um, I think his delivery has been better. I think going forward, he's he's in his few cameos, he's shown he's been better. Uh, so that's another thing to, to consider after the international break. But um, at the moment, it's hard to say, you know, with any gusto that Liverpool are a, a title-winning team. They'll challenge for the title, I'm sure. But... Um, I think on this current form where it seems to be that they are so vulnerable through the middle um, and they do have problems in defence slightly, particularly on the right-hand side with, with Arnold, who just comes out every game with a, with a huge target on his back. Um, obviously, he's one of the best fullbacks going forward and his his right foot is is unbelievable. His delivery, his 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 vision. Um, you'd wonder, is it time to actually stick him in midfield given uh, that's where uh, we're we're starting to see problems with Liverpool but um, yeah it's another difficult game for Liverpool and I think more teams are probably going to look at this kind of blueprint um, and not fear and like Simon says the the sheen is kind of slowly being glossed off again um, and particularly coming into the the winter now with the AFCON uh, and losing Salah and Mane and um, and Naby Keita as well you do wonder will Liverpool be able to maintain um, that kind of run of form that was probably lifted so much by Sella. Um, he was just absolutely unbelievable for the past nine or ten games, and that's kind of starting to fade away. Um, on West Ham, I mean, uh, we said it in the group end, uh, they're such a, a solid team. They're so impressive. They're so big and athletic, but fast. Um, they're well set up. I think Declan Rice is probably performing as one of the best midfielders in the league at the moment. It certainly feels like um, his game has just gone up and up to a level now where he is uh, he is absolutely um, deserving of that kind of 
in a number four shirt and 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 the the links he's had with Chelsea and Man United in the past. But I mean, David Moyes has these guys absolutely um, playing absolutely unbelievable stuff, and 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 they're such a likable team as well. I find uh, with Mikel and Tony and some of the characters they have there. Yeah, incredible, really. I, I didn't fully get the Deco Rice thing uh, up until maybe the summer, but towards the latter ends of the Euros and certainly in the final against Italy, I thought he was phenomenal. And I was actually really surprised that uh, Waistcoat pulled the waistcoat and just subbed him off. But um, uh, that's what he'll do. But uh, yeah, as you said, like it just seems like this flawless 4-2-3-1 that every other team in the league is trying to nail down in terms of having those two midfielders protecting your back four, but feeding a very dynamic front four as well. And their work rate is just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, um, off the ball, we're talking about it yesterday in terms of what he's getting out of, you know, Jared Bone in particular, now Fornals, who joined more as a playmaker, really, rather than one of these wingers who's going to press. But, you know, he's been phenomenal in the last kind of 18 months after buying into what Moyes is trying to do. Um, you know, the fact that they can rely on bringing on Lanzini as well, who's, uh, who I think is a phenomenal player. And Antonio has, has been delivering for the last kind of three to four seasons for them as, as their number nine. You'd probably be slightly concerned about their squad depth if particularly Antonio got injured. I think Yarmolenko is probably the only person who could r- relatively fill in for him. But um, off the ball, said something interesting yesterday as well. I think they've only you know, made four changes to their starting 11 in the first 11 or 12 games. So uh, they really do have that consistency nailed down. And uh, Moyes has mentioned the professionalism and work rate that the two Czech lads have brought to the club as well. So uh, that seems like a a fantastic piece of business. So uh, everything's going their way at the moment. I, I like the fact that they start their strongest team in Europe as well, even though they're, you know, pretty comfortable in their group. They're just trying to keep that momentum going. So, um, you know, once a team recognizes that something is working and and they just need to keep winning matches, it's it, it's a great place to be. And we've all been there at certain times as supporters, and you know, you have that feeling that something is building really positively, and and you just want to, the same eleven starting over and over again. And and that's fortunately where West Ham are at the moment after you know a few years of chaos there. And and I was a bit concerned for them when they uh, sold Sebastian Haller to. Ajax, whose you know form has been phenomenal in the Netherlands and in Europe, but they've really created such a different style of play to what he wasn't suited for. So again, you have to give Moyes in particular credit for that call as well. So uh, yeah, everything looks absolutely perfect for them at the moment. If they can avoid injuries and somehow manage the European schedule uh, going into the next few months, then you'd have to say they're almost nailed on for top four, really. Uh, which is something I wouldn't have predicted uh, in the past, certainly under Moyes. But, uh, you know, you have to hold your hands up and say uh, that he's uh, delivered a, an Evertonian-style renaissance that most people thought he wasn't capable of anymore. Yeah, just to um, to follow up on that, um, yeah, as, as Enda said, credit has to be given to Moyes. I mean, I think... Nobody really expected it to go his way when he took over at West Ham. And considering the club that West Ham are or were even like a, a year or so ago, they were a mess, like a real mess of the club when you when you consider what was going on there with their with their owners, with their stadium, with everything. Um and everything just seems to have clicked since since Moyes take t- took over and 
yeah, they, they look so strong. There's a real kind of fear about that team, like going into matches now. Like teams will fear that that West Ham side, um, and I think that that is something that they can carry with them throughout the season. As Enda said, they might fall away t- towards the end of the season, but fourth place is up for grabs. Um, as we said before, I mean, maybe Antonio uh, Antonio Conte's Tottenham might start to uh, rally themselves a bit towards the end of the season and, and get there, but. That four places up for grabs, and and I don't think West Ham are are, are thinking of of um of relaxing their grip on it. And uh, on the Manchester Derby then at the weekend, um, not a good result for Ali, and another weekend where again we're we're into uh, Sunday Monday with with reports on you know is he going to stay, is he going to go? I think ultimately there's been. Some reports today that uh, that he's going to stay on. Mm. Um, again, it's it's kind of like a, a deja vu all over again. And I mean, the game on Saturday morning. I, I'm you know you might disagree with me, but I thought in some ways it was worse than than the defeat to yeah. to Liverpool. Um, just the the utter domination in in such a way where. I mean, come 50, 60 minutes, it felt like a training session for City. And I think that was probably, it was nearly worse in, in some ways than getting hammered by Liverpool uh, with 10 men um, on the score sheet. It's that, you know, when, when, when your nearest rival is just happy to, to play it out, um, not take too many risks, not even make any substitutes. Mm. Um, it, it, it's not a good sign of where things are. Yeah, it was... Very similar to Liverpool in terms of I felt Liverpool and City both could have put United to the sword and both just kind of sat back and almost enjoyed embarrassing them without scoring, if that makes sense. Um, and it was just, I mean, it, it really was so poor, just no energy, no thought, no no plan. Um, you know, we've talked about in the last few weeks the fact that, you know, United don't press anyway, but... Uh, the amount of space they gave the fullbacks, especially Cancelo, um, and and the way, <laughs> I mean that second goal where Shaw and Maguire leaves it, and then De Gea is surprised by uh, the incompetence of two players who have been incompetent all season. It's just like if there was Benny Hill team music playing in the background, you know, it just would have made it absolutely perfect, you know. So it was just, uh, and I felt sorry for De Gea because you just expect defenders to clear that you know what I mean and and he had a phenomenal first half until that point but uh it was uh it was an extremely tough and depressing watch and um I know Ali has flown to Norway today and he's uh he's packed quite a big bag for a short holiday so I don't know if that's uh <laughs> I don't know if that's a sign of of something to come but um yeah I I don't know I mean we we said last week that mm. when you're at a, when you're at a point where you have three games to save your job it's you're probably done anyway and I felt it would be a, a longer stay of execution than that just because United don't really know who they want in after that uh, in, in the short term I think in, in the summer they they have certain targets that they'll want to chase probably unsuccessfully uh, considering it'll be Richard Arnold's first summer in the job so it'll be a bit like Woodward 2013 kind of style which is even more depressing to think about going forward but uh, <laughs> um, yeah I think it'll drag out for a while just because you know they're in okay shape in the Champions League group, and they probably will start fancy having a good stab at top four, considering the squad they have. But it was just, it was just an absolute shambles, really. Um, and 
you know, it did, it doesn't even warrant sort of analysis or, or whatever, you know, it's just, it, it's that bad and, and that toxic now it's, and I suppose the shame for Ollie is he, it's almost gone 360 now where, where it's, it's hitting the stage it was under Mourinho, where you have a, a relatively miserable squad, which is something that he, he fixed. Uh, if you think of the players who, who will probably leave in the summer, Cavani wants to move on. Back to South America, Pogba is going to leave on a free. Van de Beek probably wants to be gone. You know, you wonder about Tellez, Dallo. Uh, and, you know, that creates a pretty bad atmosphere when, you know, you have so many players planning, uh, save for Horizons. Uh, and Ollie put in so much work in his first 18 months to fix that. Uh, so it's just a shame, you know, as Phil said in the group, you know. Mm. Uh, either die a hero or live <laughs> live long enough to be a villain, and I think it's hit that stage for Ali now, unfortunately. Um, and they probably just persisted with him a little too long, and and the contract in the summer, he, I, I said it at the time, I felt it was extremely generous considering the fact that he still had to prove that he could take United to the next level, and mm. and the fact that they're already discussing with his coaches renewing their contracts is really surprising because I think he's been equally let down behind the scenes with his coaches in terms as well as on the pitch by the players. So, um, yeah, city, I mean, it was just comfortable as you like for them. I like they'll, they just kept old Trafford and knew exactly what they had to do and they executed it very well. Mm. Um, and you know, I, I don't think Pep, even though he didn't look in the best mood before the match, I don't think, I don't think that was because of volley. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's it's a tough watch and it's a tough period, but um, a lot of people predicted that it could go this way, and uh, unfortunately, you know they've probably been proven right, which is unfortunate. Mm. Yeah, it's starting to turn a little bit toxic now. I think, especially um, the moment when Donny Van de Beek finally came on, um, and it's unusual to see a Donny sighting, but the, you know the sarcastic cheers yeah. uh, as he came on was just. And misplaced you know, his first pass and then City uh, almost scored, you know. It's just like, you know, <laughs> it was just like, like, Donnie, don't give these people material, you know. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you're from Ajax, possession is your thing, you know. And then he just, I think he passed it to Foden, was it? And then City almost scored. It was just like, Jesus, my heart sank, you know. It was just, uh, we just can't get it right, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough around the club. And then the women's team considering in the last minute and <laughs> if you want to find misery around United it's just like there's so much there to, to work with you know so uh, yeah it's it's going to be a tough few months I think and uh, uh, I don't know what's going to happen I've heard different things from different people most of them unreliable anyway so I don't want to say anything daft mm. but uh, I think we'll just have this week by week analysis of what's going to happen at United which as a supporter is pretty exhausting Simon, I mean, from a Spurs point of view, you kind of snuck in there uh, on the back of, of all the Antonio Conte talk to, to Madrid and, and plucked him for yourselves after Nuno. Do you think it'd be interesting to get y your point of view on that? Um, it all seemed to very, go very quick, but I think uh, myself and Ender were, were talking about it last week and we kind of agreed that it was probably the right idea to, to sack Nuno um, at the first available opportunity. I think it was probably the wrong appointment from day one so you know you can't be too sentimental about things or forces um, and when a guy like Conte is available just go and get him um, how, you know what do you think of, of of that move there at Spurs yeah I think I think it's the, it was the right move I think um, hiring Nuno in the first place was was a terrible decision the, the more you look back at it I know, I know that hindsight is twenty twenty, but 
um, God, he was so unfit for that job. And um, Spurs were and still are in absolute shambles. So bringing someone in like Conte has really steadied the ship already. I mean, performance-wise, it hasn't made a difference yet because, you know, this team has a lot of problems. But uh, just the kind of the mentality around the club and the feeling around the club is fantastic because, you know, as Endo was talking about there with United, it was almost similar uh, or worse with Tottenham because there was such a toxic atmosphere around, especially that last game against against United. And I think it was probably a brilliant result for Spurs and a terrible result for United, if you look back on it. Um, but yeah, I mean, Nuno was just uh, from day one, as you said, he was um, he was not a, he was not the right fit. He seems like a lovely guy, um, but that's really all you can say about it. Because when when Mourinho got sacked, all Spurs fans were saying was, "We just want someone who's a nice guy." <laughs> and then uh, you know, Nuno comes in, and you're like, "Okay, maybe we need actually something more than this." But um, bringing Conte in was brilliant because you know we we kind of we jumped on that whole shambolic um, decision making from 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 the United board, and you know Conte kind of poked his head back up from from uh, last summer when Spurs were in talks with him, and it looked like he was ready to come back. And um, we pounced at the right time, and it's I think it's going to be I think it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks for the club, for the team, for a lot of those players on the team. Um, he's obviously brought in his his three at the back formation already and you can see just some slight adjustments but there's already kind of talks of of who he's gonna give the axe to uh what players he's he's just not gonna allow in in his team um players like lucas mora harry winks um and a couple other periphery players potentially matt doherty might not make it in this conte squad um, but he brings in a kind of a decision making that hasn't been there at Tottenham for such a long time, um, and he brings an air of authority as well and respect. Mm-hmm. Um, Harry Kane said in his first interview, I think since everything that went down in the summer, that he's he's really excited in how things are going. He he was excited by the appointment in the first place, and it shows that Spurs are are, are looking to improve and and have a plan going forward. How is that the case? I don't I don't know if Spurs necessarily have a plan, but they just saw Conte was available and they went for it. And they said, they obviously agreed that, um, okay, we're going to give you money this time because Conte doesn't sign a, a contract without these kind of, um, these promises. So um, it's kind of similar where we have to take it week by week with, with, with Conte at Tottenham. Um, is it going to work out? I mean, probably not. Conte walks from every single job he's had eventually, but hopefully he can deliver something special to the, to the club. Um, his record speaks for itself, really, and I think that it's the right time to bring in someone like Conte. Um, you know, there's been talk about having a project manager in, someone like Graham Potter, Eric Ten Hag. Um, these type of names have been, have been bandied around a lot, but it's all basically just a a mold of, of what Pochettino had at the, at the, at the club. Um, and I think, you know, Tottenham have, have moved on from that now. And I don't think it's, it's the right time to start bringing people back in um, like Pochettino. Obviously I think that's the long-term goal is he's going to come back eventually. And I can even see Conte as this kind of intermediary where he, 
he he wins things for Spurs or he brings them back up to that level where where top four is there, Champions League is back up. But um and then maybe Pochettino comes back from from PSG. But uh, at the moment I think it's the right it's the right thing to have an authoritarian manager like Conte um who uh, he he gets a lot of comparison to to Jose but they're they're such different managers yeah, it's very you, unfair yeah. yeah it is unfair if you if you really look at it i mean conte is is a modern he's a modern manager who wins things and he's he's been winning things for the last couple of years pretty regularly whereas Mourinho hasn't hasn't won much he's clearly failed to adapt to the last three clubs he's been at i mean just look at him at roma now he's he's already started the cycle of um of turning against the media, turning against his own players, um, and having some pretty embarrassing losses in the Europa League, so it's all fairly familiar. Um, but yeah, I think Conte can do can do a great job. It's going to take it's going to take time. Uh, I think people are expecting a lot to happen quite quickly, but a lot of people haven't watched Tottenham <laughs> over, over the last couple of games, the last couple of seasons. There's a lot of problems in this squad, um, and there's a lot of players that 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 shouldn't be starting that somehow still still get started. Mm. At the weekend then, Dean Smith, uh, another manager sacked, um, and unlike most, probably leaves with a, a fair bit of goodwill and, and respect from from uh, Aston Villa fans, considering the job he's done over the past couple of years, getting them promoted, getting them settled into, into the Premier League. Um, they've obviously been in a bad run of form, but I mean... It did feel a little bit of a surprise um, when the news came through. I mean, I, I, some of the, the names being thrown about uh, as potential replacements. I, I saw a tweet from uh, a friend of the pod, Kane Carroll, uh, just saying that out of all of the candidates uh, under consideration that Dean Smith is probably still the best and most equipped man for the job, which which says a lot about him, I think. And he's already been linked with the uh, the, the vacant Norwich job after Daniel Farke is uh, sacking as well at the weekend. But... I mean, he had a difficult job on his hands considering the departure of Grealish. Um, did, did the Simon, you'd be familiar with the, the replacement of, of Gareth Bay and, you know, throw four or five guys at it and, and hope one of them sticks and, and they got in. Buendia and uh, Bailey and, and, and Danny Ings, obviously, and I think Bailey's had a lot of injury problems, but things haven't gone too well. And in fairness, Villa, again, uh, not too sentimental about things and, and a bit the bullet just before the, the international break. But uh, and I'd be interested to, to hear your thoughts on, on Stephen Gerrard's link to the job. Um, I mean, if there was a, ever a Premier League job that could potentially be the one to, to kind of um, be a stepping stone between Rangers and, and Liverpool, is this one considering Villa aren't necessarily a, a relegation threat and do have a decent squad there. But uh, it does feel like a huge risk at the same time. Yeah, it, it's interesting. If you look at the profile of squad that Jared has had, uh, even when it was Liverpool under-23s uh, and, and now at Rangers, uh, and you look at the players Villa have available to them, there is a there is a match there. Um, so I can understand that link more than some of the others who are mentioned. And, and you know, I think it's it's extremely tough on Smith uh, to be given the bullet at the moment, um, especially when it appears Villa don't have the direct replacement lined up like Spurs did with Conte, for example. But um, obviously he suffered a bit with losing Grealish and they have spent a lot of money in the past couple of years. I think in terms of net spend, they're in the top five, I think, uh, uh, behind the bigger clubs. So they have 
invested a lot in the squad so he was always going to be under pressure to deliver results and I, I thought they had a fantastic summer in terms of the signings they brought in but some of them just haven't unfortunately delivered a, as much as they would have hoped but um yeah I, I guess with Gerard he we talked about him last season obviously when you know he was linked with Liverpool and we felt that he he's not the type of guy to be you know um to make a rash decision he seems very planned and coordinated in terms of slowly stepping up the ladder and he has done a phenomenal job at Rangers so it would be a massive decision to walk away from that uh, even though you know they haven't quite been as impressive this season as they were last season obviously there was a a lot of transfer rumors there in the summer in terms of you know Morelos in particular but uh, some of the others as well but they managed to hang on to pretty much the core of their squad who won them the league but uh, I wouldn't be against it as an appointment in terms of as a neutral, seeing how it would go, because I think, you know, they have a lot of what you call, you know, stylish players there who could fit the mould of what he tried to do at Liverpool uh, with the U team and has succeeded successfully at Rangers uh, while bringing in that work work ethic as well that's probably been lacking with Villa this season. I know Keane uh, has been quite upset at the constant changing in tactics, which is surprising this season under Smith, considering how consistent he was in the past two seasons and and I think Jared is extremely consistent in and how he tries to approach uh, every match so uh uh I still don't think he'll he'll bite the bullet at this point um although it would be an interesting stepping stone uh, back into the Premier League but if it goes wrong then it probably ruins any chance he has of of getting you know the big job that he'll inevitably want at some point. So uh, I think it's probably a little safer just to stay, stay with Rangers for now and, and keep building what he's done there. Yeah, I think that, I think that it would be, you know, I think it would actually be a decent um, job for, for someone like Steven Gerrard. It's an interesting job. I think someone mentioned that it's, it's kind of a fairly interesting one in the fact that, They've they've got a lot of great players. They've got a lot of stability within that club, and it's it's a massive club. Um, and there, there's there's an op- there's a, there's a real opportunity for someone to come in there and, and do some serious work because, um, you know, as Ender was saying, I do feel sorry for for Dean Smith, but it it just looked like he was he was having a bad run of form, and that, those things happen to to clubs like Villa. But I think you know there's a stability there at that club that that someone like Jared can come in and he's already proven that he can kind of take on a club like that and 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 really go with it and and he does have that kind of ruthlessness as well to 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 succeed um and it's also it also gives him a, gives him a platform for um for Liverpool to kind of keep an eye on him and and, and see how he gets on in, at the bottom half or 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 kind of middle half of a of a of a Premier League table um in terms of stepping up. So I, I think it's the perfect job for Gerard. It is a bit strange that it comes, you know, only, you know, 12 or so matches into the, into the, into the league, into the season, but you got to take these opportunities. And I, and I, I think that um, if, if it's a toss up between any other club in any other situation in, in the Premier League, I think this is probably the safest bet for, for Gerard because it, it gives him a, a bunch of players that, that he can really work with. It gives him a massive kind of club to be at as well, uh, with a huge history, um, and I think it has all the makings of um, of a positive step for his career. Yeah, and I think if his character alone, I think he'd be very good in kind of setting up 
a bit of a siege mentality at Villa um, and kind of lifting them because they did seem to find a little bit of a rut towards the end of the Smith year. And I suppose, you know, Smith did all he could with them really and huge credit to him um, for the job he had. But immense amount of pressure considering the, the money they had, um, the fact he had to get them up and then sell them in the Premier League. But I think I think I saw Danny Murphy talking about it today that, you know, Jared wouldn't take this job because Rangers is already a big enough job to, to that he doesn't really need that kind of intermediary stepping stone before potentially taking on the Liverpool job, which I think is a little bit strange. I mean, I'd be really surprised if Liverpool hired him, unless things went proper tits up with Klopp. Um, I'd be really surprised um, if Liverpool hired him on the basis of Rangers' experience alone. I think they would prefer to see some success uh, in the Premier League before taking the chance on him because as big of a club as Rangers are, it is still the Scottish Premier League where you are expected to compete for a title every single year. And although the pressure between Rangers and Liverpool is probably similar enough, I think you do need to, you know, cut your mustard in the Premier League for, or or at least a kind of a top four, top five league um, to be given that kind of, I suppose, comfort of, of, of knowing that you can go to a job like Liverpool where you're competing at the higher end, you're against the likes of Pep Guardiola, you know, the top tier managers um, and you're also kind of balancing the Champions League and European exploits as well. So I, I was surprised by that comment from Danny Murphy, uh, but Again, I think it would be a great job for Villa, but I think it would be a bit of a risk at the same time. Um, and you do wonder, will they go for someone a little bit more established? Um, because I think Rangers are probably, or uh, Jared is probably the type of character, again, that wouldn't leave uh, Rangers in the lurch mid-season, which probably could uh, count against him um, when these types of jobs comes up. Um, quickly, lads, just to, to finish off, uh, we have Irish uh, duty this week, obviously, Portugal and Luxembourg coming up. Um, obviously had a, a great spell of it last time out. Wins over Azerbaijan and Qatar. Um, I think the, the squad is looking very settled now. A um, couple of small changes. Obviously, um, Aaron Connolly dropped out, which um, I suppose is hard to argue considering his form for Brighton. Jason Malumbi has come back in. Um, he started to get minutes at West Brom, which is good to see at the at the top end of the um, the championship. Um and what would you like to see out of this one? I mean, personally, I think it would be great to get some revenge on Luxembourg. I think the side is now in a far, far better place than it was um, at the last leg. Um, surely, you know, you know, it would be nice to get a result against Portugal. Um, but I mean, if you look at that Portugal squad, it's uh, like we said the last time. It's uh, it, it's pretty impressive, um, and I think. Um, you know, it would be some job to, to kind of replicate that performance uh, that they had in Faro. But I mean, considering the, the they're, they're surely a bounce in confidence after the last spell that it wouldn't be on the beyond the realms of possibility. Yeah, the last spell was thankfully very encouraging after a year of us begging for something like that. So uh, it was great to see finally some results and performances go our way. I think. You know, potentially the Portuguese match, you can look at it either way, like at home in front of a, a sold out Aviva. Well, not sold out, but uh, a maximum capacity. Uh, it could potentially be the type of game that, you know, Kenny really needs to to go on to the next level. Uh, we saw Knight and Cullen speaking today, giving him more, you know, good PR 
like a lot of the players did in the last window, really wanting him to stay on. And, and I think that's almost inevitable now at this point when you see uh, the consistency in the squad that he's starting to put together now that he wasn't able to in the first 12 months or so because of injuries and COVID and just everything seemed to be, everything that could go wrong did go wrong for him. But um, it's looking like a really settled squad now, probably still fractionally light in midfield, but um, you know, apart from that, um, and a lot of players in really good form as well, which is great. Uh, so you'd imagine they'll go into the Portuguese game with a lot of confidence. Um, you know, we, we've talked before about Santos and Portugal and how he, you know, he's still trying to find that right balance between starting Bernardo, Bruno, Ronaldo, maybe João Felix as well. So um, it's it's always a bit of a mixed bag what you what you got get from them in the past eighteen months. And I think you know Ireland played so well against them in in Portugal that you know you wouldn't rule out potentially a good performance there. Maybe not a result, but you know I'm really looking forward to seeing how. Um, how the confidence in the squad is matching up against the, uh, the Portuguese team. And, and then obviously I think Luxembourg is a great opportunity, as you said, to get some revenge. And I, I would expect a very positive result there as well. So I'm hoping for, you know, two good performances and at least one good result. And I, and I think we'd be in, in, in decent shape um, to continue this bit of momentum that Kenny finally has. And, uh, you know, it's good to be excited by Ireland squads again. Um, and that kind of youth that we hope would kind of come through, um, as well as the consistency in the performances and, and a solid approach that probably you could argue Kenny hasn't had had yet, considering the amount of changes that he's made. But you know, as you said, he's he's realizing realizing the players he can trust now and the ones who perhaps he put too much faith in in his first few months. Um, so I I think overall we're in much better shape than we were, and uh, I'd hope that they'd continue. Uh, that momentum. Yeah, I think I, I would agree with that. Um, I think Portugal is, is going to be a massive game either way. Um, I, I suppose you could say the result matters, but in a way it's more just the performance and, and how we play in front of that home crowd because it's going to be such a huge occasion for, for everyone that's in that stadium, um, you know, as close to max capacity as we've gotten for a long time. And, you know, I just think that atmosphere can drive the team to to really say something on the on the pitch i think the players have have a they feel very hard done by by what happened um with, with portugal the last time out and i think they they want to prove a point to to not only the fans but to themselves as well that they can see things like this out and they can compete at that at that level um i think portugal have have an extremely squ- uh, strong squad um and that starting 11 especially the attack is 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 pretty formidable but you know, at the end of the day, atmospheres can swing things. The the, the kind of the, the way the manner in which Ireland play can can swing things, and they can they can knock Portugal's confidence a bit. Because you know, let's not forget that Portugal they they really need a they really need something from this match as well. And um, they're kind of teetering on either playoffs or or straight qualification, and that they, they'll want to get those three points. But but that can also set them up to fail. So there's a lot of pressure on 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 Portugal. Um, with Ireland, it's just for for us to kind of prove ourselves um, as a team, and I think that we have a lot a lot going for us. As Enda said, you know everything is kind of hitting hitting the ground at the right time. Um, there seems to be a lot of freshness in the squad. Uh, there's a lot of players that are coming in that that are going to get their chance, and uh, you know it's it's a nice time to to go into an international break and and not say oh god another international break. You know it's. 
it's it's just nice to have that feeling back and um hopefully we can we can nick something at the Aviva. If we get a point out of that, that's fantastic. Uh, we move on to um to the next game and then hopefully get a bit of revenge and and we'll see what happens from then. But you know, I think we, we we've had our day in we've had our day in the sun in terms of we've kind of turned a corner. Um, now it's time to, to kind of prove it to ourselves so we can keep this consistently up and we can keep battling away. First, I thought you treated bollocks with me, right? It's honest, this is live. We're joined by the editor of Football España, Alan Feely, to talk about all things Spanish football. Hope you're well, Alan. I'm very good, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. So I suppose on the surface it's been a, a pretty interesting La Liga season thus far. Um, obviously we had preempted the uh, the regression and, and all the usual madness around Barcelona from from the summertime, the loss of Lionel Messi, uh, the problems that Ronald Coleman was going to face. But in fairness, uh, even in spite of of losing uh, probably the, one of the biggest names in in world football, uh, La Liga has trucked on nicely. The likes of Real Sociedad and Sevilla. Um, really putting in title challenging form. Obviously, Real Madrid are thereabouts, of course, as well. Um, but let's start with Barcelona. I think they're they're the main talking point uh, this week. Certainly, um, with Javi finally coming back, um, it felt inevitable that he would take uh, the manager's role at Barcelona um, sooner rather than later. Given given Coleman's uh, misfortunes, um, I suppose just to start there um, and the season so far, and for Barcelona and and Coleman. Uh, it felt inevitable that uh, that he'd he'd lose his job. Um, I know. I think there was kind of question marks around you know Barcelona's finances that are they wouldn't be able to 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 sack him or, or get in a new manager, but they've managed to to fangle something together. But how bad are things at Barcelona? I suppose on and off the field that we finally come to this position now that I suppose all along dating back to the summertime felt pretty inevitable. Yeah, I think, you know, for some time now, ever since uh, Xavi took his first steps in coaching with El Saad and Qatar, it's been inevitable that he was going to come back to, to Barcelona as a coach one day. It's probably the most preordained coaching appointment in footballing history, without even joking. Like, I mean, I know you could say someone like Steven Gerrard now kind of working through his steps in management as well with Rangers, maybe come back to Villa in the coming days, has been rumoured, but... Uh, and then maybe he'll end up in Liverpool someday. But I think Xavi was always going to come back to Barcelona. And that's because of the unique kind of cultural identity of the club and how closely tied he is to Pep Guardiola and also Johan Cruyff and that direct line, you could say. He was always a natural successor to Pep Guardiola in terms of the kind of homeboy coming back and doing well. Because even someone like Luis Enrique, who obviously was also a former Barcelona player and is also very closely tied to the club, he wasn't as pure or as Cryfian in his principles as Xavi has proved himself to be so far in his coaching career and his rhetoric as well. So I think it was inevitable that he was going to come back and his arrival has completely changed the atmosphere of the club overnight. He was presented this morning, Monday morning at Cap Nou. There was a lot of fans there, lots of noise made, real excitement about the place. And that's been missing so far this season, especially since fans came back. There's been real apathy around the club. Um, ticket, t- ticket sales are down, attendances are down. Uh, there's just a general lack of kind of belief about the place at the moment, you know. And that's partly because of the financial situation where they've lost obviously Lionel Messi, they lost Antoine Griezmann. They've not been able to recruit heavily during the summer when they probably needed to if they wanted to step up and compete with the big European clubs. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think 
while that was accepted last season, kind of the way Kumi was inheriting that situation and trying to kind of make do, I think this season it was doomed from the beginning. Um, it was highly publicized during the summer that Joan Laporta was looking around for other alternatives. I think he was looking at the German coaches, Thomas Tuchel, Hansi Flick, uh, even Jurgen Klopp was mentioned. Um, obviously, they were difficult to get at that point, given um, the finances that would have been involved in prizing them from the respective clubs. Uh, but that was his his thought process. He couldn't get any of them, so he stuck with Koeman, but kind of made it clear that you know um, it was never going to be a long-term thing. And then what happened was there was kind of an open war of words between Kuman and Laporta in the press uh, through various proxies and all that kind of thing. And things began to look untenable. Uh, the performances on the pitch were not good enough, uh, both domestically, where they're mid-table, and in the Champions League, where they've only kind of just returned to second place in their group, courtesy of last week's victory over Denmark Kiev. But they're still you know, six points and a million miles off of Bayern Munich and top of the table. Um, and also I kind of felt like it became increasingly apparent that Barcelona as a team were doing less than the sum of their parts, if that makes sense. Like, Koeman is an average coach, in my opinion. I've not rated him at all. I mean, I'm an Evertonian, and his spell in charge of Everton, as I said many times in the past, <laughs> was disastrous. Valencia fans would say the same thing. Like, he's just not a very good coach, to be honest with you, and he's a very arrogant person as well, so I kind of... It, it, it all kind of contributes to a, a malaise. And once Barcelona fans could see that there was no coherent plan on the pitch, there was no positive vibe on the club, um, Koeman was constantly playing down their chances, you know, insulting the ability of his players, coming up with some incredible sound bites. Like you mentioned that uh, when they signed Luke de Jong, that Luke de Jong is better in the air than Neymar. Uh, that, that, was, that was the thing he actually said, you know, like the headlines write themselves. So, it all became increasingly untenable, to be honest with you. And sorry, it's kind of a winding and uh, rambling uh, answer, but <laughs> it was always going to be like this. But now that Xavi is back, uh, everything has changed overnight. And while things are still rough for Barcelona, their squad is still unbalanced, there's holes there. I think that the players he has at his disposal are much better than they've proven themselves to be this season. And that were a competent coach to come in, and I believe Xavi to be that competent coach as well as somebody as kind of authoritative and charismatic and assertive as him, I really do think that they can turn things around and improve the season. I'm not saying they're going to be challenging for the Champions League title by any means, but I reckon that they'll be there thereabouts in the title race and up in the top four. Um, I suppose on Coleman, I mean, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a manager um, go from club to club and leave such a, a pat of destruction behind him each time. It's amazing that he he's, he's kept getting the big jobs, especially this job in particular. Um, in terms of Xavi, I mean, is this going to be a complete return to say the the Pep style of play, if you want to call it that? You know, the neat little passing, the tiki taka. Um, I mean, I've seen clips of of his El Sad team over the past couple of weeks playing really nice stuff, which I imagine is a lot more hard to translate to to the current La Liga and Champions League than it is to to the Qatari League. But is is that what his goal is? And 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 I suppose does he have the personnel really to to, to do that with Barcelona right now. I mean, obviously there's some fantastic players. La Masia is still continuing to churning out some some decent young players, but there are a couple of guys there you look at and wonder, you know, Jesus, how, how did you end up in a Barcelona shirt? So, um, like, is it going to be a kind of a work in progress or do you think he'll straight away try to initiate that side of play? 
Well, it's going to be a work in progress in terms of how successful it will be. But I think the principles will be clear from the beginning. Like he's made made it clear himself in interviews and stuff about what his beliefs are. And like I said earlier, they're indirectly in line with the Cruyffian kind of system that Johan introduced to Barcelona in the 1990s and also Pep kind of took on and modernized when he took over, you know. But I think it's not going to be returned to Pep's Barcelona because even if Pep was to come back to Barcelona, it wouldn't be Pep's Barcelona. It'd be different. You know, and Pep has modernized his, his thinking and changed the way he plays. I mean, if you look at the way Man City played against Manchester United the weekend, like it was complete superiority. But it wasn't tiki-taka. It wasn't that Barcelona yeah. team. It was different because, you know, through his time in America, through his time with Bayern Munich and through his time in the Premier League, Pep has changed the way he approaches the game. And he's modernized it. You know, I think that the way Man City play, that should be the reference point for Barcelona. They should have the humility to look at that team and say, okay, this is how we're going to play. But as for actual principles, I think there's no doubt that dominance of the football, love of the football. He's talked about players can look at the football like it's a bomb. They have to look at the football like it's a treasure you know, and retain it and look after it. And that's going to be a fundamental thing. Um, Frankie de Jong speaking after Barcelona miraculously threw away a three-goal lead against Celta Vigo at mm. the weekend to, to draw three all. Um, he was talking about how players need to be more brave when the heat is on because he was saying that in the second half when the tide turned, when the crowd got up and Celta were beginning to outplay Barcelona, he wasn't able to find teammates because they weren't looking for the ball. They weren't being brave enough with the ball. And there are players in the team who are fundamentally unsuited to Barcelona football, like Memphis Depay, who takes too long in the ball. You know, Felipe Coutinho, um, uh, Luke De Jong, obviously. <laughs> like these guys aren't blessed with the arrogance that you need when you're playing that kind of football. So psychologically, that would be a really big test for Xavi. Um, but I think, you know, if there's anyone to do it, it's going to be him because he has that ability. And he's shown that with, with Al-Sad because we need to go over to Al-Sad. And I'm not an expert in Qatari football, by the way, by any means, but I've spoken to people who are, and they've said that, you know, that when he came to the club, they were very much a low block, kind of focused on transitions, quick football. And he changed into a team that dominates the play, much in line with, you know, you could say Pep's City or Pep's Barcelona or whatever, you know. So that would be the ambition. And I reckon that it will be imposed from the off but I think it will take time for the players to become completely accustomed to it, you know. Alan, how much time does he have realistically? Because, you know, as you said, there is an air of expectation around this whole um, succession. But at the end of the day, you know, Xavi is not a very experienced coach and he's taking on one of the biggest jobs in football right now. And I know he has all this history with Barcelona behind him, but... You know, this kind of new era of Barcelona is off to a bit of a rocky start already. And realistically, how much time does he have to get this right if things don't go his way immediately? Well, that's a good question. And I think it's kind of a bad time for him to take over, but also a very good time for him to take over. Because, you know, you have, say, Luis Enrique, who I'm a huge fan of. I think he's a fantastic coach. He took over a Barcelona team in the mid-2010s that still had the core of that team, like Xavi was still on the team, for instance. And, you know, Messi was in his pomp. He had Neymar and Luis Suarez. Expectations were sky high. So he was almost on a hiding to nothing because no matter how good that team were, and some people think that that 2015 Barcelona team was better than Guardiola's, you know, 2011 or 2012 or 29 uh, team. 
um, because of the way it played, the fluidity, the, the kind of verticality, as they say in Spain. Whereas Xavi now is coming in to a Barcelona that's post-Messi and the mood of the club is lower than it's been in a long, long time. Because, you know, if you look at the two eras of Barcelona's history, the most successful has been Cruyff's team and Guardiola's team. But aside from that, that's actually more of an aberration than, it's more an exception than the rule, if that makes sense. Because throughout Barcelona's history, they've had spells where they've been great. You know, in the 50s too, they had like when they had Laszlo, Kubala, and this kind of thing, they were a very strong team. But they've always been Madrid shadow. And the expectation on Barcelona has always been toward playing well as opposed to actually winning. But Cruyff, and then of course Guardiola's teams changed that to such a dramatic and unrealistic extent, of course helped by the Lionel Messi era, that Coolers kind of took it for granted they were going to be winning things and challenging in Europe. And it became like that, you know. But because of the financial mismanagement at the club and the lack of success they've had in recent times, you know, there's an acceptance that Barcelona aren't up there with Liverpool or Chelsea or Bayern Munich or Manchester City, who I think are the best teams in the world right now. There's some way below that. Um, and Spanish football as a whole is below that. We saw that the way Atletico played against Liverpool, for instance. So I think that there's an acceptance there that they, he needs time. And I mean, how much time will he get? I think he'll get as much time as he possibly can, to be honest. I think that this season is almost like a free hit. I think that Barcelona have too much quality to not finish with the Champions League places. And I think if they do, then they'll have the summer, they'll have pre-season to build, and then next season will be the season he'll be judged properly. Um, and the financial situation should be more liquid by then too, so be able to recruit players in the summer. And they move on players like Antoine Griezmann, for instance, uh, for relatively high fees. So... I reckon that he'll get the summer comfortably and then I think it'll be next season where he'll begin to be judged properly because he'll have had, you know, 12 months in the job. He'll be able to have time to impose his ideas, all that kind of thing. But like, as you've seen with Koeman, like Koeman got 18 months, almost 18 months. And like Koeman is, a, like I said earlier, is not a good coach, do you know? And he never built a cohesive, functional team ever. Like he was he was always quite, quite patchy. Um, saved by Lionel Messi's brilliance and once Messi left the results became so bad that it became untenable and given Barcelona's situation there's an, an, a, a kind of an, uh, an acceptance that they're not going to be able to tempt a top coach um, into the club one of the German revolutionaries or whatever so this is kind of what they have you know so I think that there's, there's a willingness to back Xavi and he'll get time Alan, in terms of the league leaders then, and I know that Sociedad have played a game more than um, some of the chasers, for example, but uh, they still have been arguably the standout team of the season, especially when you consider Oyezabal has been injured for the last few games and it hasn't really affected their their form. They're probably not playing as fluidly as they would like, but you know they won the Copa del Rey last year. They have a really strong young squad on paper with that mixture of experience as well, with um, you know David Silva in particular. Uh is there a feeling in Spain that they could go all the way this year? Yeah, there is. I mean, there was a discussion on a Spanish radio station just last night, actually. They were saying, is Mikel Marino the best player in Spain right now? And is Real Sociedad the best team? Like Mikel Marino, I'm sure most of us remember him from his time in Newcastle, where he didn't exactly set the world on fire. But he's become a really top midfielder this season. Um, and last season, too, to be fair. And I think he kind of embodies this Real Sociedad team, if that makes sense, because whereas last season maybe you had smaller technical players um, who were kind of doing most of the early 
running in the beginning of the season when Real Sociedad also started like a started on fire. This season, you know, Marino is kind of tall, he's muscular, he's physically strong, and he brings a lot. He can bring creative technical technical ability, but also a bit of physicality to the team. And that reflects Real Sociedad this season in general, because last season, while they played some great football at times, there was always a feeling, and I spoke to people who were very close to the club, and they were kind of saying that we don't have the the physicality or the grit or the kind of, you know, the the dark arts that a Sevilla has. And that's why Sevilla were there and thereabouts towards the end of the season and Real Sociedad weren't because they didn't have that experience, that kind of that darkness to them, if that makes sense. Whereas this season, they seem to have it in, in, much, better, uh, in a much better degree, obviously helped by their Copa del Rey triumph, um, helped by the fact that the group stayed together last summer. Mikel Oyazabal had a very big summer with the Spanish national team in both the European Championships and the Olympics. And obviously he's paying the price now with his injury. But um, he's much better player now than he was last season. Alexander Isaac as well had a very good European Championships for Sweden. And he's gone from strength to strength this season too. And I actually reckon that, you know, obviously the market this summer will be dominated by the likes of Erling Haaland and Kylian Mbappe, who are both expected to move on. But I reckon that if Isaac can continue in this trajectory that he's on, he could be a very good option for another club who are looking for a striker because he's got so much talent. And the problem so far in his career has been a lack of kind of consistency in scoring goals. And he's beginning to right that wrong now. So, uh, so yeah, it's very exciting. And they're a very, very good team to watch. And they're a very, very good club too. They, they do things the right way. They're very tied into their community. Um, they use the youth system very, very smartly. Uh, their coach is a very good man, very deep ties to the club. And, of course, they have a certain former Liverpool, Real Madrid and Bayern Munich midfielder currently learning his trade with the B team. So uh, he could be in line to step up should Emmanuel Aguasil uh, kind of, you know, tire of uh, the spotlight. So, yeah, it's a very bright future for them. And they're also balancing, to be fair, uh, their European commitments well this season with their league form. That's very hard to do. I mean, they drew with Sturm Graz at home last Thursday night. But aside from that, they're doing quite well. They're neck and neck with... Um, with PSV and Monaco in their group. So things are going very well in San Sebastian. Alan, I'm glad you mentioned his name because uh, I was afraid I was going to butcher it. But I was going to ask about Alguacil, the uh, the manager, considering, I suppose, the manager merry-go-round in the Premier League at the moment. But is, is he kind of on the radar for, for I suppose, bigger Spanish teams? Is, is, does he have ambitions to maybe go into a Barcelona or Real Madrid or even the Spanish national team? Is, is he that calibre of coach who's kind of you know, showing everyone, given having won the, the Copa del Rey last year and now top of La Liga this far into the season that he has the credentials to, to do so. I would I would be absolutely stunned if he actually went to, to Barcelona or a club of that ilk. I mean, and that's not a slight in him at all. It's his own personal choice. Like, he's a club man. He only came into the first team because of, uh, I think it was after Moyes left. There was kind of a crisis in leadership, so they brought him up from the B team into the first team. Um, but I, I, I think he has no ambition in going on to those kind of clubs. Um, I think he's a local guy. He's from the area. He's well settled there. Um, he's completely committed to Real Sociedad as a club. Uh, but he's not a fan of the limelight. He's not a fan of all the kind of uh, the drama that goes with you know top level football. I think that what's most likely with Alguacil is that he'll step back to go to the B team again. Actually, um, just because that's how he sees things. I mean, I know that. COVID was very tough for him personally because um, I think his wife is 
immunocompromised, immunocompromised, and that's the word. And she was kind of susceptible. So when he was working with the, the team, they were in a bubble and he could barely go home, really. And I think that took a toll on him and his family. Um, and I don't think he enjoyed that one bit. I think that what's natural for him is that he's going to see out the cycle of this team. And when things come to a natural end, and probably when Xabi Alonso is ready to step up, he'll probably actually swap jobs with Xabi Alonso, take over the B team, remain with the club for the rest of his career, uh, either in a coaching capacity or an advisory role or a directing role or whatever. But I'd be amazed if he coached anywhere outside of Real Sociedad, to be honest with you. And then the big match of the weekend, obviously, was Sevilla against Betis. And uh, you mentioned earlier uh, their experience and squad depth, I feel, as well, which is probably overlooked a bit in Spain. But um, do you think the fact that they're a bit more streetwise than maybe a Sociedad, for example, um, and would go top of the league if they won their game in hand, do you think there's a chance for them to really um, have a breakout season and, and win a league that they've been desperate for for a long time? Um, yeah, I mean, like the thing with Sevilla is that they have that quality in spades, that kind of, you know, like the South American grinta, you know, that kind of like great and kind of will to win, all that kind of thing. And that's helped by the amount of Argentinians in the squad as well, single thing, but today. But the problem with Sevilla is that they're playing results football, and this year their performances have not been good. The football has not been good. And while they've been winning in La Liga, They've been showing up in, in Europe, like the bottom of the Champions League group, you know, which is unacceptable. It was the weakest Champions League group and the bottom of it. They're not even in a Europa League place as things stand. Uh, Wolfsburg are ahead of them. Um, Lille are ahead of them. And then uh, Salzburg are way ahead of them as well, which is a joke, to be honest with you. It's a real opportunity missed because they should have been topping that group, to be honest with you, given how weak it was. It was the best group in the Champions League. But their football this season has been poor. They're getting the results are right. They're winning games. And Julian Nopetegi will always do that. He's a fantastic coach. They have a very strong squad. But they are missing that bit of spark that they had, you know, when Eva Benega was there. I mean, we said it last season as well. When Benega was there in that 2019-20 season, especially post-lockdown, mm. it was them in their best moment because the way the team functioned, it was so balanced. And Benega brought this bit of chaos, a bit of madness to the team. He just... You know, on his day, he's one of the best players in the world, genuinely, one of the best midfielders in the world. And he didn't have that many of those days during his career in Europe, to be fair. But post-lockdown 2020, he had it. He was, for that run, he was phenomenal. And he took the team to the next level. Uh, but without him, they're lacking that kind of creative player, to be honest with you. I mean, Papu Gomez was hoped to be that, but he's kind of not been really able to kind of put together a consistent run of form in the team and his kind of best position is kind of up in the air and all that kind of thing. Uh, Lucas Ocampos is very good that 2019-20 season. He's kind of not scoring as many goals uh, this season. Uh, they still lack that kind of real killer of a striker, to be honest with you. I'd be really surprised if they won the title. Um, I'd love it, obviously, because my ties to the city of Seville, I'd love if they won the title, but it'd be a big ask. I think, if I was a guest now, Remedy to win the title, to be honest with you. I think that uh, that's the way things are going. And on Real Madrid, um, I've just about to ask about them. I mean, flicking through the results, it's not hugely impressive, but I suppose when you're carrying probably the best player in the league at the moment in Karen Benzema, who's, I think he's 10 goals down for the season. Um, I mean, they looked far and away the best place to take advantage of that regression from Barcelona with the squad that they have. Um, Vinicius Junior is another who's who's having a good season so far and seems to be coming of age slightly. But I suppose with Carlo Ancelotti back there, it seems 
a fairly settled team, um, if not, um, I suppose, a household name of teams, if you want to, if you want to put it that way, um, in terms of, I suppose, from our point of view over in, in the UK and Ireland. Um, is the assumption, like you said, that they're going to go on and win the league? Um, and, and I suppose for people who haven't been, you know, watching Real Madrid week in, week out, um, how are they performing? Are they, are they, uh, are they uh, you know, playing good football? Because I suppose on the surface, from my point of view, just looking through the results, they don't seem to be too going too well. I mean, there's two ones, two ones, nil alls. Um, they seem to kind of struggling over teams rather than blowing teams away. Yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. I think, um, like when they appointed Ancelotti in the summer, it was always going to be this kind of season. To be honest, I think that Carletto was a kind of coach who he's a very good coach. Obviously, his track record is is, is superb. But I think that he's not the kind of coach who creates a team that's kind of transformational. You know, he's not a Guardiola or a Klopp or a Tuchel, that kind of really revolutionary coach. He's the kind of coach that gets the best of his players, but doesn't create a kind of cohesive team that's better than the sum of their parts. And that's why he's appointed, because basically this season is kind of a placeholder until Kylian Mbappe comes in next summer, if all things go well. And Mbappe will herald a new era at Real Madrid. Um, that's what all their recent financial kind of shenanigans have been geared towards, is bringing Mbappe to the club. He's the face who's going to lead Madrid into this new era. And Carlisle was picked because he's a safe pair of hands. He can build a functional team, and that's what he's done. Like He's he's geared him towards the strengths, which is the midfield and the attack. Uh, like Karim Benzema, as you said, I think he's the best player in the league right now. He's, he's phenomenal, one of the best players in Europe. Probably only Mohamed Salah is in better form than now at the moment, I'd say. Like he's really in the centre stage. He's playing unbelievably, not just in terms of finishing goals, but also creating goals, leading from the front. Uh, he's just force of nature right now, really. You know, Vinicius too. Um, he's been phenomenal. Uh, like he was almost a figure of fun, to be honest, so far in his Real Madrid career because he hasn't been reliable in front of goal. He tends to kind of, you know, do everything well. And then the last moment he fails. But this season he's been scoring goals and he's been being decisive. And it's a big thing. And that's credit to Carlo and Ancelotti as well, because I think he knows how to get the best out of uh, Vinicius and he's doing a very good job in that regard. Um, so that's their main strength. And obviously the midfield is still very strong. Tony Cruz, Luka Modric, Casemiro, like these guys are still phenomenal footballers, even though they're all north of 30 by now. And I think maybe Casse is a bit younger, but... The other guys are, you know, I think Kroos is 32 and Modric is 35, 36. So they're kind of nearing the end of their reign, really. Um, and I think I think that Madrid are, you know, I don't think they win the Champions League, to be honest. I think mean, they're good enough. Um, but I think they could win La Liga because, you know, when the season goes into the winter and the fixtures begin to pile up and the Copa Ray comes into the equation and all that kind of thing happens, I think that they'll be the only ones who are kind of maintaining their consistency. Even though they aren't being spectacular, they're not playing wonderful football, they're not completely convincing their shipping goals, I think that they will maintain a consistency over the course of the season that Sevilla or Real Sociedad won't be able to. Uh, Barcelona is probably just beyond them this season. And then for Atletico, they just don't look the same side that they normally were last season. They're not clicking. They're shipping way more goals than they normally do. They're not seeing out wins with the same confidence. So, so yeah, I mean, I think Madrid will be the most likely winners, even though it won't be exactly a spectacular uh, victory, you know. 
And staying on Madrid uh, briefly, I'm you know, you, I have to forget that uh, that Eden Hazard is still there. I mean, is it is it fair to call him a flop at this point? I mean, obviously he's had a, a number of issues over the past couple of years since he did join them from Chelsea. But I suppose if there was any manager that you think would try and reintegrate him back into a starting eleven, it's it's Carlo Ancelotti, and even still, he's he very much seems a bit power player, and and it does seem like this uh, this uh, Spanish era of his career has, has, hasn't gone to plan. Yeah, it's remarkable, really. I mean, Ancelotti was asked recently in a press conference, uh, what's the problem with Hazard? Why isn't he playing? Because, you know, there was no visible physical problems. There was no injury that was keeping out of the team. He just wasn't being used. And Carlo basically said, you know, the problem that Hazard has is that the player, the coach prefers other players. Like, he literally just said that. Like, it's like a Carletto was a, is a charming man. You know, he knows how to get people on side. So if he's getting put down like that by Carletto, there's something wrong, you know what I mean? Like, so it's a bit, it's a mystery, to be honest. I think that, like, you know, from my perspective, having followed Hazard's career, I just think that it's a case of the lack of work he put in when he was younger in terms of looking after himself physically is catching up with him. Because when you're 24, 25, you can get away with, you know, eating what you want and not working as hard in training. And, you know, all the accounts from his time at Chelsea have been that he was a, one of the worst trainers that I think John Obi Mikel said he was the worst trainer ever seen. He was just a terrible trainer. He didn't didn't work hard in training and on match day he'd be the best player on the pitch because of his because of his, his talent and his ability. But now that he's, you know, twenty eight sorry, 28, 29, 30, that age, uh, kind of turning into a kind of veteran, it's catching up with him and his lack of physical preparation is just, you know, making him just not fit enough, you know, basically. So that's what it is, I think. And if you look at the way Carletto has built this Madrid team's offense, especially you Benzema, but then you have you know Marco Asensio, Vinicius, Rodrigo, really quick, dynamic players. And if there's one thing Eden Hazard isn't anymore, it's quick and dynamic. You know, so I just think that he doesn't fit the Madrid kind of offense, and I wouldn't be surprised if he go somewhere like Newcastle in winter. To be honest with you. Heading to the other side of Madrid, uh, Alan, you mentioned them briefly uh, there previously. Um, what's exactly going on at, at Atletico? Because there seems to be some issues that are starting to come up. Um, well, I guess it's just very hard to build two title-winning teams at any club. I mean, like I think only the greatest coaches have done it. Like, if you think of it in one spell, it's almost a unprecedented achievement. I mean, Alex Ferguson is obviously the best example of someone who's done that, but. Like, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head who's done that. I mean, Wenger didn't do it. Uh, you know, nobody else really did it. Like, Mourinho obviously went back to Chelsea after uh, his first spell and won the title, but he didn't do it in the same spell. It's a very hard thing to do. And I think that the reason that they go in the title last season is because they were the best team in Europe, or best team in Spain, sorry. But it was also because of the drop-off at both Madrid and Barcelona, if that makes sense. And the problem this season is that I don't know, it's kind of hard to put your finger on it because like Rodrigo de Paul um, was signed from Udinese. He's been revelation in central midfield. He's just a really, really good player. He's got it all. He's tall. He's strong. He's technically neat. He can. He's a good passing range. You know, Koke beside him is very good as well. Luis Suarez is still scoring goals. That's going decisive goals. You know, Griezmann and Joao Felix and Angel Correa both offer, all offer a lot in the final third. And they're all playing well in different ways, offering different things. Uh, I guess if I had to put my 
finger on one problem, I would say it's their defensive record, basically. I mean, Jan Oblak is one of the best goalkeepers in the world, but he's not having a good campaign this year by any means. He's making errors that he normally wouldn't make. The back three isn't functioning in the way it normally does. Like Felipe, his, his form has fallen off a cliff, evidenced by the, the badness at Anfield last week. Jose Maria Jimenez, Stephen Savage are making mistakes. And that's it, basically. I mean, Simeone, speaking after the game, um, they also blew a... But they had a 3-1 lead against Valencia. I can see it twice in extra time to draw Trio. And what Simeone put it down basically to was a lack of attention to detail, a lack of kind of awareness of, you know, closing down the half spaces or defending set pieces. That, that was basically it, you know. And I think it's, I don't know what it is. Things aren't clicking this season and they're making mistakes but they normally don't make mistakes. And in a league where they should be, you know, in the best position to retain their title than anybody because they have, haven't lost any players over the summer. They've strengthened, but they're not. They're not playing convincing football. Um, they're shining at times like they beat Red Betis 3-0 last weekend and look very, very strong. That trident of Felix and Griezmann and, and Suarez was, was firing in all cylinders. But, you know, against Liverpool, they were abysmal. Uh, against um, Valencia, they weren't convincing either. And there's been too much of that this season. So I'm not really sure. I mean, like last season, I think they probably overperformed their XG a lot because you had Oblak, who was keeping out more shots than he should have been, going by the indicators. Suarez was scoring more goals than he should have been. Marcus Llorente was scoring more goals than he should have been. Um, and maybe this season they're regressing to the mean slightly. But, uh, but I don't know. I mean, it's a long season yet. I wouldn't rule them out of the race by any means, but they're definitely not convincing the way they normally do. What do you see happening uh, with Simeone? Because he's been there for so long now. Um, it's hard to imagine Atletico without Simeone at the, at the helm. Is he still there for the long term? Is there any possibility that maybe in the, in the near future he might step down or a, a change might be afoot at the club? No, I don't think so. I think his position is too strong within the club for him ever to be sacked. And the, co- the, the fans love him too much for that. And he loves the club. Um, and I just feel, I can't see him anywhere else, to be honest. I there's never been any talk about him going anywhere else. Um, I mean, even now, when vacancies come up big, cl- big clubs, nobody really links him to, to Simeone because there's not an expectation that he'll leave. And, you know, I think that his time is definitely not done because, like I said, he's proven he can build two title-winning teams a decade apart almost, you know, which is remarkable especially in a league as dominated by Madrid and Barcelona as La Liga. So, no, I think he'll ride out the storm. That's not even a storm, really. I mean, disappointing results, yeah, but they're still doing quite well. They're still within touching distance of the title race, you know. So, no, I, I can't see him leaving anytime soon, to be honest with you. I think that even as a man, like, he's still very physically strong and fit. Like, he's in ridiculous shape. He's, he's very intense in that regard, you know. So, I don't think he'll... Uh, he could never take it easy and kind of take a back seat or anything. I think he'll want to continue, and I think he want to continue Atletico, to be honest. Alan, just to finish off then, um, on a story, I suppose, that kind of got going last week was the news of Unai Emery potentially getting the Newcastle job. Um, and at the time, you know, I saw some comments, um, I suppose, from, from sections of, of Spanish football Twitter that, you know, it looked likely that he was going to get sacked anyway and Villarreal were going to get six or seven million euros or whatever the, the release clause was for his fee. 
Um, but I mean, he turned around. He's staying at Villarreal. Um, maybe the the win in the Champions League during the week um, put some pressure on 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 him and the club to to continue going. I suppose. But were you surprised that uh, that after all the talk that uh, it fell through? Yeah, that was interesting um, because things gonna happen quite quickly. I mean, the news broke in the morning of a Champions League game that. Newcastle were basically, I think the, the news was that he'd be in charge for the game of the weekend. That was the kind of the sentiment. And, you know, obviously it was the day that I were playing in a very important Champions League game, so it wasn't ideal preparation. Um, and then after the game, he basically was speaking and he was kind of like, well, there's interest there. And I'm flattered by the interest, but an offer hasn't come. And if an offer comes, I will discuss it with Fernando Roig, the president of Villarreal, who he's a very good relationship with personally. Um, because, you know, he gave him the chance to kind of rebuild his career after the Arsenal and PSG kind of debacles, you could say. And then um, we'll discuss it and see what happens from there. And the sentiment after the game was that he was going to take the job. Basically, he wanted the job and it was only a matter of time. But then I think over the course of the evening, there was kind of things happening in the backgrounds. He spoke with the president and then apparently at 1 a.m. they had this phone conversation and he decided to stay at the club. Uh, partly because he was unconvinced by Newcastle's kind of sporting prestige, because I think he was kind of saying, well, how can you have Eddie Howe and me as the two candidates? We're very different coaches, different systems, different backgrounds, uh, you know, different philosophies. Like, how could you have these two coaches that are so different as your two first choices? It doesn't make sense. And also, they were very unimpressed with the leaks coming out of the club because... I think a lot of the Newcastle uh, staff were kind yeah. of talking about it and, you know, kind of saying it was done basically uh, without kind of going through the proper procedures. And I think that he kind of saw, okay, this is a club that is in serious relegation trouble, um, yet to win at 11 games so far this season. Uh, a championship squad, like, let's be honest, um, new owners who have no, no clue about football. It's not even like the, the Man City investment where they knew what they were doing. They appointed the right people. They've been kind of scattergun in their approach. I think Miguel Delaney said that agents of the game are pretty unimpressed by how they're going about their business and all that kind of thing. So I think he kind of saw this. He kind of saying, okay, this is uh, maybe not an ideal condition to take this job on. Uh, whereas at Villarreal, yeah, they're in trouble this season. They're not doing well domestically. They're performing well below expectations, playing pretty turgid football, even though they've a pretty good squad. He's invested in the summer. Um, but I think that, you know, it's almost like an ideal situation for him because now the fans would be so happy that he's stayed and he's kind of committed his future to the club and turned down the Premier League money that it's almost mm. like giving them Reverse a boost. psychology. You know I mean? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's kind of like it's like a new manager bounce almost. Whereas, I mean, when the news broke, you're right, like the people were kind of saying, this is almost a blessing in disguise for. For Villarreal. I mean, like Jamie Kemble, who works for me for Football España, he's a Villarreal supporter, and he was kind of saying, like, this is kind of great, like, give me, give us six million euros, we can move on, you know? And Sid Lowe was talking about, you know, Ernesto Valverde and, um, and Diego Martinez, the former uh, Granada coach, being, you know, possible upgrades in Emery, given what Villarreal needed this moment in time. So, yeah, it's kind of a funny situation, to be honest with you. I think Newcastle didn't come out of it in a good light. But uh, Unai Emery's stock has risen, uh, it seems, through it all. So, you know, no harm done, I guess. Mm. 
in fairness, two wins from two there for for Emery since all that happened. So, like you said, <laughs> a bit of reverse psychology with uh, with the Villarreal yeah. fan base has them back on board with that. Um, Alan, thanks as always for coming on this evening. No worries, it's a pleasure. Respect. Respect. Respect, man. Respect. 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 So we leave it there, so. Okie doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs>